Look into my eyes, Dr. Watson. Look into my eyes. You are unable to move, Dr. Watson. You are unable to speak. You are mine. I'm Bob. I'm Zach. This is Genre. We are two guys who used to work at a bookstore in Portland, Oregon. We used to talk about books for a living. Now, we only talk about them for fun. We are reading old genre and pulp fiction with an open mind and exploring what makes them so fantastic. Just a reminder, we have a new email address where you can ask us questions or recommend your favorite books. Talk to us at genrepodcast at gmail.com. That's genrepodcast at gmail.com. This week, we have one of Bob's books, Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula. So, Bob, why this book? Well, it's October, so we've been on a real vampire kick, but we wanted to check in with Sherlock Holmes. And we are trying something new this week. Instead of reading a novel or listening to its audiobook, We've actually listened to a BBC radio drama adaptation of the book, Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula. This was so much fun. Uh, it's been a really good month of reading scary stories, and I really like taking a theme and just like sticking with it and really, really getting into the horror, you know? It really makes me feel like I've accomplished something with my life. My niece and I have made five haunted gingerbread houses. Hey, hey, we're all keeping so busy. And we've read a little H.P. Lovecraft now, a little Matheson, and last week, the translation of a millennium-old vampire concept, Vikram and the Vampire. So I have a much better sense of where the vampires come from and where the vampire might be going. And how cool is that to run into a vampire story written in Sanskrit? Yeah, that was great. I liked the the trickster nature of this vampire, and I especially liked that this this uh, Sanskrit Baital Pachisi, the concept of this vampire is completely different from the Western vampire, even though both look similar. They're both connected to graveyards and bats, so they have a lot of thematic similarities, but different concepts. Very cool. I wish I wish October was longer so we could really keep on this. Um, I keep I keep running into pictures online of these like you know, really gory pulp covers that look absolutely insane. And I kind of, I kind of want to check them out. And I guess, you know, even though this story features two, I guess you would say like classic characters, I think what we ended up getting with Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula was about as pulp entertainment as it comes. I really loved it. And we didn't even have to read a book. It's true. Our radio play was based off of the book by Lauren D. Esselman, which was Originally published in 1978, Esselman's book is part of the series The Further Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, which which the series pits our heroes against, I guess you would say, the, the more visible like public domain monsters. For example, one of the titles is Sherlock Holmes, The War of the Worlds, in which you know Sherlock Holmes, along with his, his friend Professor Challenger, embark on their most dangerous adventures to date to discover the nature and intent of extraterrestrial attackers. Detective Holmes and Professor Challenger. He's a great character, Challenger, who first appears in 1912, the book The Lost World, where dinosaurs still exist in the center of the Earth. And both of these characters, Sherlock and Challenger, are created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but they could not be more different. Where Sherlock is gentlemanly 
and intellectual. Professor Challenger is kind of, he's a, he's a great adventurer. He's a big guy, you know, brawny and kind of hot-tempered. He will get in fights to get his information out of people, whereas Holmes pieces the plot together through very careful step-by-step logic. Come to think of it, he really, he reminds me of like the, the literary version of that author translator that we read last episode, Sir Richard Francis Burton. I mean, Burton spoke dozens of languages and, you know, he'd get into all these misadventures in Asia, the Middle East, Africa, you know, all these places. And he's like writing books on sword fighting and, and falconry. I feel like this kind of larger than life manly man type is, I don't know, like emblematic of the 19th century. I mean, he, I guess Professor Challenger is like Arthur Conan Doyle's second most famous character. So it seems like people in the 19th century were really in love with this this kind of fantastic character type. Yes, the Victorian Superman. And getting Holmes involved in these further adventure stories, they used lots of different things, lots of different historical events, lots of famous or classic literary characters. In the Titanic tragedy, Watson and Holmes board the Titanic, which sinks in 1912, but they board it before it sinks to pursue the brother of Professor Moriarty. The Titanic is super interesting because that's actually way more grounded in reality than like Martians and vampires. Really, we're mixing Holmes in with like actual historical situations, which is cool too. There's also a Jack the Ripper book, but in another book written by Lauren D. Esselman, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Holmes, Watson and Holmes try to discover the link between Jekyll and Hyde before it's too late. Yeah, to be honest, I think I'm just as excited to read these kind of like fantastic juxtaposition stories as I am to actually follow up with the real Arthur Conan Doyle adventures. Yeah, it's very thrilling, like seeing when we talked about pulp journals a long time ago and people taking up old tropes in new stories. This is similar because new authors are taking up these classic characters in new stories. Yeah, and it's really cool. I don't know. I just really like it when familiar characters fall into the public domain and people can start to use them and expand on them. But let me ask you this. 50 years from now, 2070, some of the characters from our childhood are going to be sliding into public domain. What character who's currently copyright protected do you want to see Sherlock Holmes go up against? I think Indiana Jones versus Sherlock Holmes would be thrilling. I'd really like to see Sherlock go up against like a 80s slasher icon, like Sherlock Holmes with Freddy Krueger in a in a single story would be this like incredibly mismatched pair. But I think that they could have fun with it. I mean, in this series, Sherlock seems pretty comfortable with like supernatural settings. So I think they could make it work. Bob, what happens in Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula? Well, Dracula happens. Sherlock Holmes and Watson are sitting in 221B Baker Street minding their own business when a journalist comes to them with information on a new case. Ah, okay. I remember in A Study in Scarlet, Watson comes across a periodical where Holmes has been like publishing essays on his detective methods. And here it's a journalist who comes to them. So Sherlock seems to have this like PR man savvy relationship to the press. What does this journalist tell them? The journalist tells them about a mysterious schooner which has docked at London Harbor. It's a tall black ship that came out of the mist and the entire crew 
is dead. The captain has also been writing a detailed log on a scroll of weird happenings on the ship. So before his death, he stuffed the scroll into a bottle, which was then found near his corpse. Holmes and Watson uncork the bottle and try to make out the captain's cramped, rushed handwriting. Near the final page of his writing, he says, I will battle this fiend of a monster. Yeah, and I think it's super interesting how, like, everyone on the ship is dead, except for this captain, who's, like, tied to the to the wheel, to the, to the helm of the ship. And, of course, with, like, two holes in his neck. So Sherlock and Watson go off to the harbor and, you know, just to investigate clues, figure out what happened on the ship. They treat it like a crime scene. So they reach the ship and, quote, The sea fog had settled over everything by the time we'd reached the harbor. The choppy waters had turned a gunmetal gray. The vessels all indistinct shadows, end quote. Very spooky setting. The investigators present on the ship have already been mucking about the crime scene, quote, you know, doing their jobs, but really only making Sherlock's job harder. So just as happens in Bram Stoker's Dracula, in this Sherlock story, Dracula is transporting Transylvanian Earth to London. The investigators have already unloaded this Earth and taken it elsewhere, so we have a classic Sherlock investigation scene. The bumbling investigators have already gotten there before him and messed everything up. So Sherlock turns around and tells them, you engage me in solving a mystery, then you allow people to walk all over the evidence. So the the classic Sherlock method is to take very careful, like, notice and account of every single detail, especially really minor details that are usually overlooked by you know, by common people. And from that, he really constructs these elaborate, I, do we call them a story? Like he, he figures out exactly what happened in order to account for all of the evidence to be in just the way that it is. So when Sherlock has a chance to look around the ship, what does he notice that the police's initial investigation had missed? Remember the captain tied to his own wheel? Well, the investigators see this and they believe it had to have been some sort of struggle. You know, he got beat up, they tied him to the wheel. But Sherlock, unlike his contemporary investigators, this is why I love Sherlock. He gets down close and actually looks at the rope that was used to tie up the captain. And doing this sort of physical investigation, he finds that the rope was tied in such a way that the captain must have had to use his own teeth to tighten the knots. So he concludes the captain tied himself to the boat. There was no struggle. Beyond that, the investigators also told Holmes that upon their, quote, thorough investigation, end quote, they found no blood anywhere on the ship. But Sherlock Holmes looks just over the side of the boat and sees blood down the side. Yeah, he also gets down on the, the you know, the wooden planks of the deck up close and he starts looking and he notices that there's no traces of like shoe scuffles. So he really rules out the idea that maybe like some sort of fight happened that ended with the sailors going overboard. Instead, the conclusion that he comes to is that whoever sent these men overboard, they had to have been inhumanly strong because whoever this was seemed to have just lifted full grown adults into the air and tossed them into the sea. Yeah, so their conclusions aren't terrible. They're logical enough. But Holmes is 
so devoted to his work that Doyle will often compare him to an animal. Like in Hound of the Baskervilles, he's actually described as getting down on the ground and crawling through the grass, chasing after a scent like a basset hound. So Holmes is so committed, it's almost like an animal-like instinct to his detection. I like that image of him sniffing out evidence because, you know, we always say that Sherlock is the, the quintessential sleuth. But this word sleuth actually comes from like an archaic word for a tracking dog. So like the image of him sniffing out things is, is very fitting. Anyways, so it's like a common trope in Sherlock Holmes stories for these these police types to look at the crime scene and come up with an explanation that, you know, it explains a few details, but it, it just isn't very satisfying. Like it doesn't it doesn't account for every single factor at play. Does something like this happen with our ship? Do we get any any sort of half-baked explanations? Well, right on cue, the half-baked journalist we met earlier shows up to the schooner and explains the scene to Sherlock and Watson. His conclusions, like the investigators, they're logical enough, but they're easy, they're quick. They kind of avoid pointing towards any significant conclusion. They just explain things away. So, for instance, one... The body of the captain was drained of blood, but there are no major cuts or lesions on him and no blood spill on the ground around him. So naturally, the journalist says, ah, the man was anemic. That's why when they investigated his body, he was missing so much blood. Two, Sherlock says, okay, another piece of evidence is the captain was writing desperately about hauntings and monsters in his captain's log. The journalist says, quote, the ravings of a madman in complete exhaustion. Three, the puncture marks in the neck. Well, the journalist explains this away, saying, well, although I cannot account for that, I assume it's the nicks from shaving. And Sherlock, of course, like he does with many other investigators in past Sherlock books, he hears this journalist out and eventually looks at him and just says, you are a disgrace. And then he proceeds to disprove everything which the journalist has just tried to explain away. So after this, they end up going back to London for a few weeks, and it seems like life is returning to normal, I guess you would say. But then these strange reports start coming out in the newspaper about a lady at night who's luring children into the shadows and biting them in the neck. Yes, the lady in white, or as the street kids call her, the bloofer lady, which is a mispronunciation of the beautiful lady. Holmes and Watson rush to the graveyard, intending to break into a crypt to get further into their investigation, of course. But when they arrive, they find the door to the crypt has already been broken open. Holmes says to Watson, draw your revolver, Watson. There's danger inside. And they creep into the crypt and hear a woman screaming and see a group of men standing around her. Was Watson... Watson rushes in to save her, but they have already pounded a wooden stake through her heart. So Watson, rushing the man with the hammer, cries, murderer. But the man says, no, I am Van Helsing. Yeah, and I think that readers who are paying attention will have realized that what's going on here is that we have two Doyle characters, Watson and Sherlock, and they've been kind of placed into the plot of Bram Stoker's Dracula. So like we've take we've cut these characters out and we're putting them into this other plot. And I think that this is the moment where it really starts to get obvious. And I think it's super fun how Holmes and Van Helsing 
in this universe, they're already aware of each other, right? So like, and I think it's really fun that both Sherlock Holmes and Van Helsing seem to be already aware of each other, right? So like, they're famous characters in each of their own worlds. So of course, they already know about each other from the papers. But Watson, he doesn't seem to be previously acquainted with Van Helsing. So he's kind of struggling to get his head around the idea that vampires not only exist, but that's what's going on here in the story. And although Holmes knows Van Helsing, no, they know of each other. And although Holmes knows of Van Helsing, Van Helsing knows of Holmes, Watson has not heard of Van Helsing and he's never heard of Dracula. And also being a medical doctor and a man of science, he's not quick to believe in the supernatural. So he actually, he interrupts this Holmes and Van Helsing conversation, insisting that all of this supernatural explanation is just a cover-up because this Van Helsing guy, is re he's really just murdered someone, and now he's trying to get out of the murder charge. Yeah, that was actually one of my favorite moments of the book, in that, like, of course, Sherlock Holmes and Watson clearly just saw this group of this group of guys drive a wooden stake into a woman's heart. So like sincere and plain speaking Watson is like, of course, this guy is just trying to get out of a murder charge. But it also kind of reminded me of like the general idea of Matheson's I am legend story. This idea that like vampires are people in this sense so like if you kill a vampire it's like ethically similar to just like murdering someone yeah either way i thought it was it was a great moment yeah so after all of this conversation about is he a murderer is he not holmes explains that watson is more or less ready to follow holmes and so holmes says okay van helsing let's go get dracula but van helsing refuses help from these two because he knows that Holmes is too famous in London and that Watson will end up publishing a story about Holmes. So Van Helsing doesn't want this kind of exposure and his team part ways with Sherlock and Watson. So Watson asks Sherlock, okay, what do we do next? Naturally, they go straight to Dracula's lair. Right. And when they get there, they don't exactly meet Dracula. It seems like he's there, but he doesn't really want to reveal himself to them. Instead, what they see is just thousands and thousands of rats, which is a scene that I definitely really want to talk about later. So they realize that Dracula has outsmarted everyone, not buying one property in London, but many. So he can hide wherever he wants. He can get away out of any scene. Tired of dealing with thousands of rats, Watson and Holmes return home to Baker Street for a nightcap. They pour their whiskeys. They settle into their chairs. And then they hear a knock at the door. Right. So this is a fun moment for fans of Sherlock Holmes, because usually it's when people knock on Sherlock Holmes door, it's like people who have a, a case that they need to be solved. But now it's Dracula standing at the famous doorway. So they invite him inside and we get two really great Dracula quotes here. And he says, quote, I am honored to make your acquaintance. Even in the country of my birth, we have been fortunate to read of your marvelous exploits against the English criminal. And then they offer him whiskey and he says, thank you, but I do not drink alcoholic beverages. So Dracula tells them to give up the investigation. When they refuse, Dracula departs into the night. Holmes and Watson decide to go on a hunt for the rest of his boxes of earth. So... Am I am I correct in thinking that 
if they get rid of Dracula's dirt, then Dracula can't live in London? That's my interpretation here. But anyway, in the, in the films of the Bram Stoker's Dracula, you know, the boat is always carrying these boxes and boxes of Transylvanian dirt. They have to carry them to London, I guess, so Dracula can live there. I think it's a, a vampire necessity, according to Bram Stoker. You have to bring the dirt of your home country. So there's a territorial thing to the to the Bram Stoker vampire. Mm, I see. I like I like how at this point we get some of Sherlock Holmes' violin playing right here, which is one of my favorite characterizations of Sherlock. So Watson wakes up in the middle of the night and he hears Sherlock just fiddling away. Readers will remember that pretty much every time Sherlock is stumped, he pulls out his violin and he just like improvises. He kind of nudges along through some scales, playing these little melodies, but he never does full songs or pieces that he's memorized. It's he uses it to really like meditate and focus and let his mind wander. It's it's kind of like his adult coloring books. Yeah, and Watson lets him get away with this only for so long. Eventually, Sherlock has to play some of Watson's favorite pieces. So we can continue on noodling afterwards. So they get into the, they get the info on these boxes, where the boxes are, because Jonathan Harker, who is the hero of the original Bram Stoker Dracula book, and also Dracula's real estate agent, they, they kind of keep tabs on Jonathan Harker and they find out by his recent movements where he's going is where the dirt is. So Watson and Holmes take off to a mortuary, but they bump into the same investigators who now, because of a recent murder of a prostitute, say that Jack the Ripper has returned. Right. To the common police officers who aren't really in the know, it does, I guess you could mistake it for a Jack the Ripper thing, but really, of course, we all know it's our guy, Drac. I like what Holmes and Watson do here. They they basically say, okay, we have a centuries old vampire. We're going to confront him head on. Holmes says, okay, he most likely lives in the area in which the crime was committed. And then they, you know, they pull out a map and they look around and they're like, well, of all of these places, where would Dracula live? And then they see it, a slaughterhouse. It's perfect. It's just dripping blood all day. Perfect real estate. So they, they reach this slaughterhouse, but Dracula gets away in a horse and carriage, nearly trampling over Watson. So then they got to think, okay. How are we going to track this carriage? And so this is a great moment, I think, because we return to a much earlier Sherlock case, which we see in The Sign of the Four, where they had to use a dog named Toby to smell out another carriage. So they bring Toby back for Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula, and they say, Toby, you helped us out in the past, kind of. Can you help us out again? We have to track down Dracula. Toby... True Blue Toby leads them to Watson's house, and there they find Mrs. Watson has been kidnapped by a ghoulish man in dark clothing who, quote, has the devil's eyes. Of all people, Watson's wife. Now it's really heating up. Watson's wife is kidnapped, and she might be killed by Dracula. So they track Drac down again, but they find that he's already on a fast train out of town to Whitby. So... Holmes says, no problem, we'll get on the train right after and we'll follow him. But this train, of course, is too slow. So they arrive in Whitby and Dracula is already on a boat full speed toward the sea. So Sherlock and Watson board a steamer and order the captain to push the steamer as fast as he can to the point that the boat 
explodes. They push it way beyond capacity. And so Watson and Sherlock in this explosion are separated and they end up in the sea. And Watson is sure that Sherlock is killed. He looks behind him. Sherlock is nowhere to be seen. He must have drowned. But Watson's wife is on the line and he can see her in the clutches of Dracula. Watson has to keep swimming even though his best friend Sherlock Holmes is dead. Fortunately, Dracula is a terrible captain and has moored his ship in a reef. Right. This is the moment where we get this really great image of of lightning flashing through the dark night. And we see Dracula on his wrecked ship, and he's holding Mrs. Watson in his arms. Sherlock sneaks up behind Watson, to Watson's great surprise. And the two pursue Dracula onto Dracula's ship. They get Watson's wife away from Dracula, who, as the sun begins to rise, turns into a wolf and runs away. We're going to take a quick break to say that if you like this book and you want to read something similar, check out A Study in Scarlet by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It's the origin story of our two favorite detectives, solving a murder that springs from bad blood in the old American West. Many of the tropes we see in this book, such as Holmes playing violin to let his subconscious mind work on the case, and especially the formal conceit of having Watson be the narrator, get their start right here in this book. It's also just a really fun read. You can listen to our take of the story in Genre Podcast Episode 9, and you can listen to the story itself through Audible. We have partnered with Audible.com to bring you a free 30-day trial and an audiobook of your choice, all for free. Go to the link, which is at audibletrial.com slash genrepodcast. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash genrepodcast. Now, let's get back to the episode. So they don't really defeat Dracula. It's more like they, along with the rest of the characters from Bram Stoker's story, foil his plots to set up shop in London. As they put it, quote, We rescued England from Dracula's clutches. I think that's enough for two middle-aged men, don't you? Good old middle-aged Watson and Sherlock. They are the great London detectives, so as long as they've saved their turf, they've accomplished what they've needed to. And besides that... Holmes is certain in Van Helsing's abilities and knows that he will pursue Dracula to the ends of the earth, doing whatever it takes to finally put Dracula in the grave for good. I've loved reading Holmes, you know, especially when we read the first book, Study in Scarlet, but I think this radio drama was also great. Doing a radio play was certainly very different. I mean, I liked how it included all these really spooky sound effects. So, like, for example, when they enter the crypt and they meet Van Helsing, he says to them, I am going to tell you a tale of Count Dracula. And the sound effects go, dun, dun, dun. I love all the all the scuffles where it's just people fighting and you can hear the actors going, ah, oh, ah, great moments. And we also get a lot of cool nautical sound effects when they when they arrive at the schooner, like the water lapping, you know, ships creaking, foghorns. And I think this is really cool because that really establishes the whole setting of the harbor. Watson does give us a little, he paints a bit of a picture too, but these sound effects establish everything so I can picture exactly what it needs me to picture. And there's another clever thing that they do, which I've not heard that often, which is to characterize the classic Sherlock Holmes character, Lestrade, Detective Lestrade, who is a pretty nice guy, but he He's not a very good investigator, at least compared to Sherlock Holmes. And Holmes usually listens to him for a while, 
and then says, no, you're wrong about everything. But in this radio play, basically Lestrade starts explaining to Watson and Holmes everything he thinks. But then in the sound effects, we just hear footsteps and Lestrade's voice getting quieter and quieter and quieter. So Sherlock Holmes and Watson, basically, while Lestrade's back is turned, are just walking away. <laughs> and Lestrade is still talking only to himself. Right. So we're not only getting sound effects like, like for example, if it's raining and we hear like raindrops or something. It's not just for the sake of atmosphere, but sound effects are being used to tell the story in a way that they're not signaling through the text or what they're reading. We learn that they're leaving the room while Lestrade is still talking through the sound effect of them walking away and opening and closing the door. It's very clever. Yeah, so I mean, it can it can literally tr uh, take us from one scene to the next with with the footsteps, and it can also, like you said, with the dun dun dun, it can snap us to attention because it's saying, "Oh, here's a great moment of suspense." And other sound effects come in like that too, with the fights, with with running. We get these cool invitations to suspense and thrill. I was worried that since this was like a an adaptation of the novel, they might leave out some of the details that. You know, the, the kind of details that make reading novels really interesting, I guess in favor of like a more streamlined script or something that can be delivered by, by voice actors. I'm glad that even though they adapted the story from the original novel, they made it really fit the format really well. Like they utilized what tools were available to them to flesh out the story in this way that makes it feel... I guess, at home in this different format. But the BBC really does a great job with sound effects, and they have this huge library, this online library of sound effects of 16,000 different sounds, and they're available for use and free for educational purposes. So it's a great database, and they're kind of at the, I guess they're the vanguard of sound effects, I think. And like you said, they're utilized well. Do you have any other favorite sound effects in this one? Well, I really like the time they go into Dracula's lair. And instead of seeing him, they just see thousands and thousands of rats. And one of the detectives takes out his pistol and he just starts shooting into the mass of, of rats. So you get the actor sounding like ruffled and scared going like, oh, oh, kind of a thing. And then like these little squee, squee voices on top of that. And then just like the intermittent sound of gunfire, like pow, 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 pow. The whole thing was just like super incredible, like all these different layers. And it really, it really brought me inside the horror of the moment in a way that I think might have been difficult to do if we were just describing through text, like, oh, they're in a room with rats and firing a gun at, at thousands of rats. You know, it, it, I thought that was a moment where the format really excelled. It would be so fun to be a Foley. You know, to like bring your equipment into a pet store and say, hey, can we record your rats for a while? And then, you know, like using celery stocks and just breaking them for breaking bones in the radio drama. Foley work would be a lot of fun. And we've talked a little bit about adapting this book using some of these sound effects into a radio play. But I wanted to ask you more about this adaptation. Well, if we can call it an adaptation, but taking this classic Sherlock Holmes character from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's original writings and now using him in a new story written by a different author. So what do you think of this? You know, authors carrying on character legacies after the original author's deaths. What do you think about 
this book in particular? Do you think we could call this fan fiction? I guess so. I mean, to be honest, I've never really engaged with fan fiction on any level. I remember reading that Fifty Shades of Grey began as a Twilight fan fiction. And, you know, every now and then I Google around to see if there's like sexy versions of really not sexy characters in fan fiction form. So like, I think one time I Googled to see if there was like Harry Potter and Creature the House Elf pairings. It was pretty nasty. Pretty nasty. Oh, Lord. But but this series, you know, was Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula. It's part of the further adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And I think it's written to stay as faithful as possible to the Holmes canon. So maybe it's fan fiction, but maybe a fan fiction that strives to be as accurate as possible. Or maybe it's not fan fiction, but, you know, a publisher-sanctioned continuation of the original story. I mean, if we look at pure fan fiction, I feel like the authors of that might bristle at the idea that their work is unfaithful. I mean, like, let's leave aside these insane relationship stories just for a second, because I think that oftentimes when people write, they write from a place of really wanting to do right by a character because they really love and appreciate a character and like the world that that character exists in. Okay, so that's probably true. I mean, these independent authors and these, I guess, commissioned works by publishers, they probably have the same interest in keeping as faithful as possible to their beloved characters. Okay, I guess I suppose that with a publisher, you know, publishers put down a lot of money into distribution and printing and marketing and all these other things that go into, you know, just publishing a book. So I think the publishers have a greater, maybe responsibility isn't the right word, but like there's more at stake for a published continuation story to really get it right and to make it faithful to the original character. Because if they don't get it right, then they're not going to make their money back. So I suppose that if there's a stronger financial incentive for these industry publications, maybe that incentive doesn't exist in the same way for someone who can, you know, do everything on their desktop, write it, edit it, and then publish online with a single click. Hmm. Okay. I really want to return to this conversation in the future. I don't know. Fan fiction is very interesting, I think. So I want to, down the road, maybe look at more of these continuation stories of authors taking on the canon, or also reading some really deep web fan fiction. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, So beyond the fan fiction or not fan fiction element, we're still dealing with two of literature's most famous characters, and they never cross paths in the originals, but they are in this newer series. So how does Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula, published in 1978, stay faithful to both Sherlock Holmes and to Dracula? Well, we've, we've had a chance to read Sherlock together, but we haven't had a chance to read Dracula. So I feel a little bit more comfortable focusing on that. But for one, many of the mannerisms of Holmes are are very clearly true to character. Like we mentioned the violin playing. I think the story actually mentions his drug use at one point, as well as like, you know, just the general like keen insight into clues and butting heads with local law enforcement types. And I guess even on a formal sense, the story itself being narrated by Watson is is very faithful and very, very true to Sherlock Holmes type stories. 
And also Watson being really like grounded in the story. You know, he's not getting too swept away into the supernatural aspects of it too early. I think it's I think it's good to have the like scientific rational Watson be our our centering voice of reason in this story. Hmm, okay. So if we keep to these things that we come to trust in Sherlock Holmes in these stories, we know them as what define Sherlock Holmes stories. And if it doesn't have some of these elements, if Watson is not grounded, if he's totally into the supernatural, or if Sherlock Holmes is an idiot and just bumbling around crime scenes, if this was in a in a a new fan fiction or Sherlock Holmes story, then Sherlock Holmes fans would they would just shut the book, I think. Well, let me ask something. Was there anything in here that didn't really feel quite true to Sherlock Holmes to you? Did you feel like they bumbled any bit of the characterization? I think this book was actually very faithful. Well, so maybe that's the thing about it. Everything that the characters do feels, I guess you would say, like very familiar. But mostly because these are behaviors and interactions that we've already seen in established Conan Doyle material. So I guess I would be hard pressed to pinpoint any new like character development or any new habits or anything that that these characters are doing that adds to the book or that adds to the lore. I, I guess in this way, the story is very conservative, but I think it is out of necessity because if you want readers to be happy and to feel like they're getting a true Sherlock Holmes story, it needs to fit in with those ideas that are already established. That's true. I'm I'm thinking though now of one moment that it this book did seem to add to the character development lore. And this moment is it's almost like the author here stating their thesis or their take on the relationship between Sherlock Holmes and Watson. So to set the scene, they're near the end of this this goose chase, this long chase finding Dracula. And so Dracula is about to fly out of a window, but he looks back at Watson and says to Watson, you know, I understand Holmes. I understand why he needs to pursue these cases and find out the truth no matter what it takes. But Dracula doesn't understand Watson because Watson has put his neck on the line so many times. And now in this story, he's put his own wife in danger. So Dracula asks Watson, why? What spell has Sherlock placed on you to participate in this scheme? As Dracula is standing there in the open window, Watson thinks and finally says his reason for sticking with Sherlock, quote, he's my friend, end quote. And then Dracula flies out the window as a bat. Yeah, that's true. As we read more Sherlock Holmes stories from from Doyle himself, let's keep an eye out for these flashes of Watson as being characterized as like, I guess, above anything else, the loyal friend. Okay, so any last thoughts before we wrap it up? Well, since we've read The Last Man Alive in the Suburbs, surrounded by zombie-like vampires... We've also read an ancient bat-looking trickster vampire, and now we've seen a glimpse of Dracula himself. So where will we end up next in this month of horror stories? Well, I've been hearing about this novel called The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. It's actually one of the first haunted house books, and I think it's considered to be the first ever gothic novel. 
So many of the tropes which have carried all the way throughout like the horror genre were really established in this book. And it has kind of a fun backstory too. Like the, the author claimed that he was only the translator of this book and that it was like a found text originally written in Italian that was published centuries earlier. Yeah, but uh, I guess there's lots of like great moments like like a man walking out of a painting or like a giant helmet falling from an empty suit of armor and killing someone. Murderous giant suits of armor. I'm in. All right. Join us next week for The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. Talk to you later, Bob. Talk to you later, Zach. <laughs>